Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Getting Close with Mike Marbeck. I am him. He. I am Mike Marbeck, uh, and I apologize for the show thus far. Uh, just a few quick things before we get to the chat portion of the show, and that is that today and tomorrow, Friday, June 5th, and Saturday, June 6th, are the final days of DuoFest. DuoFest is an improv festival that Philly Improv Theater puts on each year. Uh, this, I believe, is the sixth annual one already? Jeez. Uh, we invite improv duos from across the globe to come and perform at the theater. They do shows, uh, different groups put on workshops. There's a whole lot going on. So if you are in the Philadelphia area and are looking for something to do, then you should come to DuoFest. Uh, for more information, go to DuoFest.com. You can find a full schedule of workshops and shows. So come and check it out. Uh, oh, you can also buy a... Uh, a pass. That's how the, how it's working this year. You can buy a pass for 22 bucks to get you into every show. So that's pretty awesome. Uh, as for plugs for myself, the future, uh, most Saturdays at Fit, uh, you can uh, check them out. They're a pretty great team. I have a show with Kristen Shear on Wednesday, June 10th at 7.30 p.m., uh, it's a show we do called Michigas, which is a very organic, transition-y sort of thing. Uh, really, really fun show. So come check that out at FIT on June 10th at 7.30 p.m. Um, and I think that's uh, that's it. But I did want to say that uh, uh, I've been asked to do some coaching um, recently. And uh, just if you're unaware, that is something that I that I do, some improv coaching, not like Little League. Um Although if you have a bowling team, I could probably coach coach the bowling team. I'm pretty good, okay? Uh, but that's not what this is about. This is about improv coaching. So if you have an indie team or you want to start a practice group or something or you just want to do a workshop or something a little uh, more uh, long-term, email me at michaelmarbach at gmail.com and uh, we can probably work something out. Uh, I'm always looking for uh, some more things to do that in that in that area. Lastly, if you are a fan of Game of Thrones, uh, I just want to make sure that you're aware that I do another podcast called Stark Raven Mad with me and a few other Philly comedians that uh, recap each show, uh, analyze things, make predictions, uh, and it's really fun uh, throughout the entire episode. Uh, so if you're a fan of Game of Thrones, check out Stark Raven Mad. You can find that on iTunes and, of course, my website along with other things, MikeMarbeck.com. Now, the chat portion of the show involves uh, one of my favorite people. Uh, he's really grown to be a great friend over the years since he's moved to Philly, uh, and that is Steve Kleinedler. Uh, he's involved in a lot of different things uh, throughout the Philly improv scene. Um, I perform with him uh, occasionally in a show called Pasiones de Pasiones, which we will talk about uh, throughout this. Uh, he's an instructor at FIT. He's a director um, he's done sketch, he's done theater, he's done improv, uh, he's very well versed in many different areas of, uh, theater, both scripted and improvised, uh, and he's just a great guy. So, uh, enjoy as I get close with Steve Kleinedler. I want to remind everybody that this podcast and just about every other podcast out there is brought to you by audible.com. 
Go to audibletrial.com slash starkravenmad, and you can sign up for a free, no-risk trial. You get a free audiobook to download that's yours to keep, whether you keep the service or not. As I say on my other podcast, uh, one of my other podcasts, uh, Stark Raven Mad, uh, you can download all the Game of Thrones books. So if you're a fan of the TV show uh, and want to get more in-depth knowledge of the show, uh, then you can download those books. Uh, right now I'm going through The World of Ice and Fire, The Untold Story of Westeros and the Game of Thrones, uh, and it's pretty awesome. really kind of fills in a lot of the knowledge. But it doesn't have to be a Game of Thrones book that you download. There are about 200,000 that you can choose from. Uh, and my guest can probably recommend a book as well because uh, he's quite learned. And uh, he also works for a dictionary, as we will probably chit-chat a little bit about. And his name is Steve Kleinedler. Hello, Steve. Hello, Mike. <laughs> How are you? I'm well. Thank you for the introduction. Good. Uh Thanks for being here. Thank you for asking me. Yeah. Here we are. And, and following through. Yes. Uh, so let's just get into it. Uh, what got you into any kind of performing? Because you do a bunch of different things. You do right. performing, directing, teaching, coaching, all of it. There was an interest when I was growing up, and I'm not sure I can really pinpoint what it was other than I'm extroverted and social, uh, taking you know, acting classes in school and going to acting camp in the summer, that kind of thing. Everything kind of leads into another thing. It, it, I Like most high schoolers that are in theater, just doing class shows, uh, I... But even when I was in high school, I would uh, I did a couple shows in Flint, uh, and uh, so I was doing like theater with adults then too at the same time. Flint, Michigan. Flint, Michigan. Made famous in Roger and Me. Yeah, actually, this would have been before that movie took place. But yeah, uh, we're talking about the early '80s at this point. And uh, Flint had the Flint Community Players, which was the local um, community troupe, uh, sponsored this children's workshop thingy. I don't know what you'd call it. Uh, this woman, uh, every Sunday, Saturday morning for two hours, there were about um, 15 to 20 of uh, us in high school where we'd get together and just do theater things. And without even realizing it at the time, much of what she was teaching us was fairly improv based, um, including some straight out improv without ever really calling it as such. But <laughs> it was a lot of fun. And, you know, we would go to malls and do shows that were half sketch, half improv. Um, so it was, it was, it was, it was fun. I enjoyed doing it. Okay. So you're from Michigan. I am from Michigan, grew up in Michigan. Yes. Uh, what was, what was it like growing up in that time? Like, is this before or during or after what's become, you know, the decline yeah. of, um, in the sixties, it was still pretty, uh, going, uh, when I, my, my family is from the farmlands to the west of Flint. Um, although a lot of my family worked for GM and both my grandparents did, they also owned farms. And so I grew up out in the country and at the time, you know, being 20 miles away from Flint, you might as well have been 200 miles away. It wasn't until high school when I started working in town, uh, that I, uh, you know, would go into Flint uh, proper. Um, but uh, the the bottom started falling out during the energy crisis, the late 70s. And by the time I was like in ninth grade, um, you know, our school had been, you know, I went, I went to school for five hours a day. Um, there were budget cuts everywhere. People were losing their jobs. People were moving to Texas. And while I was in high school, um, it was it was pretty severe. It was, uh, you know, m People from around here who you know grew up in Allentown or yeah. that sort of thing probably are very familiar with you know the pattern. Yeah. 
Uh, I don't think Billy Joel wrote a song about Flint. No, Flint. no, <laughs> no. Uh, yet, yet. Um, but yeah, it was a uh, Michael Moore's Roger and Me. Um, I feel like there was something else, some other big. Uh, I mean, aside from general reality and news, um, I feel like there was another big movie or something based on that. Um, I don't. There was that Flint Tropics basketball movie made with Will Ferrell, but that was sometimes later. Um, I didn't know what else was coming out of Flint at the time, but um, well, I was coming out of Flint at the time. I, uh, uh, yeah, it, it was it was it was it was a tough economic time. You know, most you know people were doing what they could to make ends meet. I certainly, you know, I worked in the factories over the summers mm-hmm. uh, in between college years to you know pay for tuition and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and was a theater major at Michigan State. Um, and did a lot of really good stuff there and was getting good roles. And that was my first improv troupe proper would have been 29 years ago. Um, okay. And what's great is uh, this week when I'm in Chicago, I mean, a, a good friend of mine is in a lead in a show there. And her husband was in my troupe and another friend of ours is still there in town um, doing she does a lot of stuff at kids theater. And so at least three of us are getting together. And, you know, there we were in a troupe 29 years ago. Um, what was important about that was, uh, when, uh, in our sophomore year, we went to Chicago, this would have been 1986 to take a workshop, a weekend workshop with just us with, uh, Del Close and Sharna Halpern. Um, and that was, A, it was a trip to Chicago. B, we were working with them. Mm-hmm. It, it, it was just really neat to go there and see the city. And around that time, I was also, um, not coming out of the closet, but realizing, you know, that I was gay and mid-Michigan was not the best place. But later that summer, one night working at the factory, I thought, why am I earning money to go to school? I'm just going to save up. And at the end of the year, I'm going to go to, uh, at the end of the summer, I'm going to go to Chicago. So I dropped out of Michigan State and at the age of 19, moved to uh, Chicago with uh, $1,500 in my uh, bank account. Um, I can't believe my parents let me go, but uh, they did. And that set me on that track of life. Well, fifteen hundred bucks in in today's money is roughly three hundred thousand or so, right? <laughs> Something. Still, it was uh, not so much the money, but the fact that I was as young as I was, sure. um, and and you know, it was it was a it was a more dangerous city then, and um, yeah, it, but it was exciting and it was a great time. Theater in Chicago in the late eighties. Which we're going to talk about. Yeah, uh, it just—it was a great time. Uh, in a moment, I want to. Right. There was a whole lot of stuff I want to just um, unpack a little bit of. All it. right. Uh, so you go to Chicago on a more or less a field trip. A field uh, trip in '86. Yes. Um, now, when I was in Chicago, I was there from 2005 to 2009. Del Close is long gone. Yeah. Um, Sharna's still there. She was yeah. one of my. Uh, she was my 101 uh, instructor. Uh, but I'm curious what was the draw back in 86? Well, the draw was um, <laughs> my, um, my, my roommate at the time in college had a one-night stand with a comedian who knew Sharna. And for some reason, they were talking about this. And this guy, a comedian said to my roommate, oh, you should tell your roommate um, to take this workshop. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, that was the extent of it. Um, and that comedian was Chris Farley. No. No. <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> um, I... I remember his first name. I don't remember his second. I mean, obviously, I never met him. Um, it was uh, one of the guys in my troop was from the Chicago area, and you know, I, and of course, I knew it. You know, we all knew what Second City was. Uh, but this sure. is before there was a conservatory. This is when the you know I when back when it was still called Improv Olympic was first starting up. 
um, Metroform slash Annoyance hadn't started yet. Mm-hmm. Um, so when I moved there, the, you know, the, one of the draws at the time was the Players Workshop of Second City, um, which was founded by some um, some of the relatives of Viola Spolin, um, Josephine Forsberg, uh, Martin Demott, who's um, I believe Viola's nephew, um, and that was one place to study, and uh, that's the first place I did, and uh, I met among others Martin Demott, and uh, it, it, I studied there for a year, and it was just, it was really cool. So you, you dropped out of Michigan State, right? Uh, Thinking that why am I spending the money mm-hmm. on a theater degree when mm-hmm. I can just go and do it? Yeah, and that was the and, and I got three part time jobs paying three fifty an hour. Sometimes I was working sixty hours a week. But in addition to taking the improv classes, I was also just throwing myself available to whatever. Um, I worked with in the first year or two. I worked with a lot of really emerging important theater companies that of that time period. Um, you know, being working as a stage manager and a technician and, and eventually getting um, uh, cast and things. There was a really exciting uh, collective called Igloo that most of them lived in this giant warehouse and made amazing shows. And I got to work uh, on some of those shows in a technical pa- capacity. It was great. And through that, I met a guy named Richard Katowski, who's still very active in Chicago. And I stage managed one of his shows. And then in the late 80s, he started the Abby Hoffman Theater Festival or something. And he wrote this uh, script called Gas Mask 101, which is about the Vietnam War. And I was in the original cast. And they've done that show every year for this festival since. I've gotten to meet some of the people who've played my part later on. It was a really exciting time for Chicago. Steppenwolf you know, was big on the scene, remains uh, every theater company was going to be the next big theater company. Yeah. And I worked with a lot of them, and I ended up, you know, by 1991, founding a theater company that's still running today, um, Shattered Globe. And um, it just a lot of, you know, I, 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 even though I started out in improv, I ended up working a lot in scripted theater and going to see a lot of improv. Um, and I think just being exposed to both uh, kind of made me who I am today in terms of theater in general, exposed to a lot of theater, exposed to a lot of improv. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I draw on that background. And for me, those years in Chicago were worth far more than I think any MFA I could have gotten. I ended up actually going to Northwestern because I got bored and uh, said I need a bachelor's, but I got a degree in linguistics. So I was doing this all at once. I was, you know, even then I was going around the clock 24 hours a day. Okay. Uh, and I know that you were in Boston. Yes. So how did you get from Chicago? What took you from Chicago right. to Boston? Um, the short answer is love. Uh, the long answer is uh, I'd been working on um, the with Shattered Globe. Um, I had graduated from Northwestern. One of my instructors had worked with dictionaries and was freelancing the dictionary work. So I was doing a lot of freelancing, uh, working on dictionary projects, and also working for a mortgage banker doing um, uh, dictaphone, you know, like listening to the loan officers talk into on tape, and I would transcribe it into letters. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I decided at some point I needed to go back to grad school. Um, so I applied and got into the University of Chicago. Um, and through that, I started there in 1993, and as a student, I had access to the internet. And this is, you know, before <laughs> browsers and everything. As a student, I had access to the internet. Yeah, it, yeah, and I, uh, I, I was a big fan of Usenet, which were these, you know, online forums. 
And I joined in January of 1994 this online forum called Alt Society Generation X, where people my age would you know complain about baby boomers or whatever, and um, made a lot of long-standing, lifelong friendships. Uh, just this last January, I was out in California with a bunch of them. We've been friends these past you know 21 years, and that's where I met my um, late husband Peter uh, on that forum. And he and I became friends, and then I went out to visit him in Boston, and it everything clicked. And I would go back and forth between Boston and Chicago the next couple of years. And since he had a good job at Harvard, uh, once I could get out of school, I moved to Boston to be with him. Okay. Um, I'm a Midwesterner, not a New Englander, so that was mm-hmm. a lot of culture shock. But um, you know, what would you? Say, why is that? What's the What's the difference? Uh, I think it's, I mean, the Yankees, you know, founded by Puritans. There's just, it's it's not, you know, in the Midwest, every, people are nice and friendly. And in, <laughs> in New England, they really have to get to know you. And uh, from a theater standpoint, the, everything in Boston is so damn expensive. There's not as much theater as there is in Chicago or Philadelphia just because you can't afford re- rehearsal space. You can't afford rental spaces. The small, the few small venues that were available then, you know, 15 years ago are now almost all gone. Mm. It's, it's really hard to just get up and do something independently um, just because it's so expensive. Yeah, that, that definitely is one of the awesome things about Philly. Yes. Uh, is that you, it, it is sometimes too easy. Uh, to get up and and start your own um, projects, it's it, you know it's very freeing, and I think I mean people who speak listen to me certainly have heard it from me, but I, the people here in Philadelphia have a wonderful advantage that isn't necessarily apparent until you go somewhere else because it's not even a case of being a big fish in a little pond. It's just that the pond is so cheap. You can <laughs> you can rehearse yeah. for $10 an hour and you mentioned that to people in Boston and their jaw drops. Yeah. You can, um, you know, you can rent a space reasonably free. And that was one nice thing about Chicago back in the 80s um, when it was still in a situation similar to what Philly is now. You could have a storefront theater that would be reasonably cheap and by keeping cost downs you could, with one or two grants, you could subsist on ticket sales. Um, where we started, where Shattered Globe started, we had a 17-foot-wide theater. It was it was about the same size as the Shubin. In fact, the Shubin was probably slightly bigger. And we were staging full-length plays on there. But did it smell as bad? Um, no, but the basement had just as low of a ceiling. And <laughs> at that time, almost... All of my castmates, except for one other person in the ensemble, they were all smokers, and so the basement would just be this cloud of smoke. It was, it was. Uh, I'm still half convinced that the Shubin uh, basement is where the Hellmouth is in Philly. It is one of the most vile places. I mean, it just in terms of things that die in the walls, um, there are mammals that. I, I, I mean, I have smelled actual decay down there. It's, it's, it. It was I, I was not upset at all. There was no nostalgic loss when we moved. Um, and I felt the same way in, in at Infra Boston when we moved from Inman Square to a tiny space bigger than both of these, but still tiny basement with people injuring themselves on the on, on the ceilings mm-hmm. to the new space in Central Square some years ago. Um, it it you know, I, I guess I've been around long enough that just making do in a substandard space that may kill you in a fire isn't worth it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, okay, so you're in Boston. Yeah. Um, 
what are you doing theater-wise, and then how did you get involved with uh, Improv Boston? Right. Um, so I, by the by 1996 or so, I'm in Boston full-time. And most of the theater, unlike Chicago, which has this whole professional non-equity arena, there isn't a lot in um, of Boston of that nature. There's a little, but not a lot. Most of it's either community or you know Broadway professional equity. There's not much in between. So for the first couple years, uh, I didn't do a whole lot. And then I found like a year after I, I, I responded to this ad in this coffee shop, um, there was this group that was just getting together to do stuff. It was literally that loosely arranged. And for the first you couple... You say an ad in a coffee shop was like on a bulletin board yeah, yeah. and you pull one of those yeah, little tickets down? Exactly. Like in, interested in making things up? Yeah, pretty <laughs> much. Um, two of the, the guy who was running it had a lot of background in film. He and his uh, business partner had had actually shot a uh, documentary. And, you know, this is back in the 90s when it wasn't as simple as point and shoot. He had, he had a lot of equipment and stuff. And a bunch of us would get together and meet. And we... Event within a couple months, you know, there were interested people, but it, it went down to a core group of seven, and we just started getting together and we would improvise, and we always v- taped everything we improvised, and then we realized, hey, we could do video, you know, sketch video out of this, um, and then we started write, writing stuff specifically for sketch, and then transcribing Im- Im- improvised things that we had done, and. Every six weeks, uh, three of the seven people who had some money would plunk down about $3,000 to rent a whole bunch of equipment. And from Friday after work until late Saturday, Sunday, um, we would shoot stuff. And we ended up doing like a local cable access series. And I learned a ton of stuff. Um, you know, in Chicago, I, 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 I watched Directors Direct. And, and with this project, project uh, we called ourselves Abneria. Um, I got to watch how people storyboard, how to set up camera shots, how to write for sketch, how to edit for sketch. Um, it was, it, it was really almost, it was like a conservatory or a workshop and it was great. And it lasted for several years. Um, the person who, because I, back when I was in Chicago, even though I didn't take any classes or do any shows at the Annoyance, I started seeing shows there back when they were still Metroform. Um, and until lines got ridiculous and long around the block, you know, I would go see shows and I became acquainted with, um, at that point, um, Mick, uh, Faith Soloway, Susan to some degree. I mean, like Susan literally in passing. It wasn't until much later that, you know, we started talking more. Uh, Mick was probably the one I spoke to the most. Susan Messing. Messing, yes. Um, anyhow, Faith Soloway had moved to Boston. And she was doing some of her big musicals, similar to the style that were done at the uh, uh, at the Annoyance. And she was doing this show in Boston called The Lesboat. And I told my friend Ian at, 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 in Abneria, like, oh, I think you'll enjoy this. You should go see it. So he did. And he and Faith hit it off right away. And they've spent a lot of time collaborating until she just recently moved out to L.A., um, he would he would do a lot of the video for her stuff. They, they just worked really well together. And the point that I'm getting at is Faith, who is now this like Emmy Award winning uh, screenplay writer, she wrote the soundtrack to our opening credits. And honestly, the only thing I ever wanted in life was to be in opening credits. And it might have been for cable access, but it was awesome. <laughs> we had so much fun shooting it. The music was great. And um, there you go. And so that took me up 
through the nineties. Well, what? Yeah. Just out of curiosity, because I'm not, I'm not sure that I know it. Uh, what was the screenplay that Faith? Oh, that's uh, she's one of the writers on Transparent. Her, oh right, her okay, sister yeah. Jill is the yeah yeah yeah, yeah. so that um, yeah she's been doing very well for herself yeah um, and, and that's the, on Prime right yes no Amazon Prime yes Amazon Prime yeah okay um, so the, and it's been so exciting to watch you know, her career um, and part of being in theater in Chicago in the late eighties and early nineties is so many people have gone on to be things and do things you know you're. Nick Offerman's, who I don't know, but there are, you know, others mm-hmm. that I do. And it's just, it, you know, seeing people on, it, it, it's, it's pretty cool. Even, even my time when I was yeah. in Chicago, uh, I mean, I was in classes with people that are currently on SNL or writing for, right. for Late Night or for SNL. I mean, that's, Chicago's an awesome place to, to be. Yeah. Uh, and you can learn a lot. Uh, and you can learn on the streets there. Yeah. It's great. Um, and so by the end of the 90s, uh, as our as Ebnuria was you know breaking up for a variety of reasons, and we'd been doing it for a while, I went to see one of the women in Ebnuria had a friend who was doing an improv show, so I went with her to see it. And opening for or they were opening for a group called Blue Screen, which was directed by Will Luera. This is before he was the artistic director at Improv Boston. He had been at Improv Boston, and at that point it was all short form, and he had created Blue Screen to do some long form things, and this was one of them. And I saw this show, and I was blown away. And nowadays it would just be, you know, a very standard, straightforward 22-minute <laughs> set. Yeah. Uh, we would call it a montage now. Yeah. Um, and... It blew my mind. It was amazing. And at the time, I'm in my early 30s. They're all in their early 20s. And I'm like, oh, God, I don't want to be that guy. But I went and I like, saw their shows. And I um, uh, you know, eventually worked up the nerve to talk to some of them. They were really cool. Um, and then they had to leave that space. And this is kind of when he got reabsorbed back into Improv Boston and became the artistic director there. But like, you know, I was helping them take down lights and stuff. And so I started taking classes there. So you were a roadie. I was kind of a roadie. <laughs> and I, I started in uh, the – I took a year's worth of classes there and I was just very involved, like being a house manager, running tech, this and that. And I got um, – and while I was in class, I got uh, some friend, people moved to Chicago and I got cast into their spot. And so I started doing – I was in one of the regular house teams, although they weren't called house teams. And uh, it was it was fun. And then – Will and Zabeth Russell, who's an amazing actor in uh, L.A. now, she was in Boston, of course, at the time, mm-hmm. they were doing a two-person show and they needed a director. Um, it was half half improv, half sketch, and I was they brought me on to help them with the sketch part. Um, and that was cool. And then I just started – and Will at the same time is moving people away from rigid – and I don't mean this in a negative way – just from moving them away from short form into more longer form things. Mm-hmm. And he created this group called Secret Society, which was essentially a montage and you know making connections to what happened here and there. Yeah. And you know at the time, everyone is like, what is this? Oh, my God. <laughs> Probably like how people here saw Rare Bird Show. Like, <laughs> ah. Um, and uh, – he just kept enforcing that vision and the main stage show got more and more that way. And there were all these opportunities to direct one-off shows. So I directed a summer's worth of Shakespearean improv and a show called the Robert cycle. I directed a backwards unfolding improvised story called backstory, which I resurrected here at fit. Mm -hmm. Um, and I kind of got a niche for taking theatrical elements and applying them to improv. 
Um, improv really affects how I approach stage. Scripted work and scripted stuff it, it informs how I approach improvised stuff. You know, it's everything's being seen. There's no nothing hidden behind the curtain. I can get into that in a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm working on with really great people, really great things. I had at the same time been in this play that didn't do well, but I made a lifelong friendship with a guy named David Mogolov, who's primarily a writer. And over the past uh, 12, 13 years, I've, he's written one-man shows that I direct. Um, they've been at New York Fringe. We've performed at the Frigid Festival. He's taken them to Texas. I brought him up here. He's done a show at Philomoka. Mm-hmm. Um, he and I just work really well together. Um, he writes the scripts. I help him fashion them. And then we rehearse over FaceTime now that I'm over here. And uh, it's... Uh, really rewarding and uh i get a lot of directorial work in that way yeah uh i just want to go off on that tangent for a moment what what is the challenge what is the biggest challenge aside from just being the only person on stage uh what what do you find as a director and watching this uh as the challenge to making a successful one-man show well i think in order to be successful you have to have a, a coherent narrative and in that regard david is an excellent writer the other thing you have to do and this is true for one person shows or sketch in general you have to edit you have to edit um when he and i work on a script together um and which consists mostly of him coming up with drafts me um reading them giving him comments knowing how he thinks knowing how he writes um he he will go for any given show he we will go through 15 16 17 drafts whole parts will get cut moved around um once we get a through line and know kind of what we're going around then we'll cut we'll like separate all the bits and we might rearrange them Mm -hmm. um oftentimes he will be doing it but sometimes i will be like oh if you do this here instead of there the flow will be better you know, this will help with the connective tissue. This doesn't sound like you. Um, I know what you're trying to say. And if you're, this is not how it's coming across, but I know what you mean. You know, he and I have a, I mean, after working together so long, he and I have a very shorthanded version of speaking where we can just say one or two things and he knows exactly what I mean. And I, he wrote, uh, he took three stories that he'd done that kind of form a trilogy and you can uh oh gosh what's it called um star the wars. last what star wars yes it's called star wars and it's available on no he uh <laughs> nothing good will come of this or this will be no good I'll, I'll i'll get you the info later but you can buy the book and uh online and it, it's annotated with notes with him and me about the thought process and i've recommended it to people who want to do one person shows because it it, it it not only does it have his scripts, but it also in the scripts he he notes it like you know this is where this came from, this is how it came to be in the space. Um, but for the first ten years, you know, we worked together in the same city, and then it still worked when I was out of town. Um, and it's it, it's a really great collaboration, and I love working with him. And then he and a, another playwright named Sarah Faith Alterman, who's now out in San Francisco, she um, runs the Mortified series that are. Across the country, mm-hmm. um, we did. They did a two-person show that I directed. You know, we went. We found our own space, which is impossible in Boston. We created our own production company, and we just did this show where they both kind of did intertwining monologues, and that was, and that was like a, a ninety-minute show, and it was um, just the way that it unfolded and it worked and it came together was really exciting to do. And it's the, but the, the bottom line to answer your question is edit. You've got as a writer, you've got to allow yourself to be edited. As a writer, you have to know how to edit yourself. No one wants to hear a first draft. Mm-hmm. They're 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 boring and redundant and repetitive, and um, you're probably not saying what you think you're going to say. So, 
you know, yeah. edit. Uh, I mean, speaking of some of that stuff, too, uh, we'll just go down that road for a moment. You do a lot of editing. Yes. Uh, what is your job? I'm the executive editor of the American Heritage Dictionary. How did you get into that? When I moved to... <laughs> Uh, well, after I graduated from Northwestern, as I mentioned, one of my professors started freelancing me work, and I just started doing it, and it was, I enjoyed it, and I went back to grad school with the intent of being able to take that further. Peter, as I mentioned, lived in Boston, and Boston is where the American Heritage Dictionary is based, so when I was planning on moving to Boston, I literally sent them a resume and a letter saying, hey, I have seven years of freelance experience, here's my resume, you should hire me, and they did. Uh, which doesn't happen anymore, probably in anything. No. Um, if you tell someone you should hire me, they might just wave you away. Yeah. And it's <laughs> funny, you know, having grown up in Flint, I know that, you know, jobs aren't forever and corporations will do what they need to to keep their bottom line. So the fact that I've been working for the same company for 18 years also kind of blows my mind. Um, so that's how I ended up doing that. Um, and that editing is a great skill to have regardless. Um, David, the the, the the playwright I mentioned, he and I also, he was the head writer and I was the director for the Ruckus at Improv Boston for almost two years. Um, we started out just because of a scheduling fluke. Our first three shows were a month apart. Then we got into a more normal every other month. Um, but we had a great set of writers and actors and every, it was very collaborative. That said, David had the final say on some of the scripts, you know, just, in, and fortunately everyone involved were very amenable to like having their words changed. And, uh, it, 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 it was, uh, it was, it was a really great time. And I, I've been very fortunate. I got to guest direct a couple episodes of episodes, what do you <laughs> call it? I, a couple shows for Dog Mountain here a couple years ago um, mm-hmm. before Carl took over the directorial reins, and that was a lot of fun, too. Mm-hmm. I was in them. You were in them. Yes, you were. <laughs> you can attest to the fun that was had. Uh, it was fun. Uh, all right. Uh, just a quick thing about your job again, uh, which is executive editor of the American Heritage Dictionary, right? mm-hmm. uh, that sometimes gets you on, gets you famous for a little while each year, right? Oh, right. Um, I've done a fair number of NPR interviews um, and I, live in studio, taped, whichever, uh, in Time Magazine, various, anytime people want stuff Oprah. about words, I'm one of the people that they go to. And if not me, they go to one of my other friends at one of the other companies. It's a small industry and we all know each other. And uh, it's great because, I, I mean, there's the, the, the principle of yes and applies as well as play to the top of your knowledge. Obviously, when I'm on these radio shows, I can't tell untruths like I can on a stage. But certainly my theater background, I, and then that was one reason why marketing got pushed me into this to begin with, you know, 15 years ago, because I am able to hold a conversation with reporters or, and uh, be able to make a string together a coherent sentence, which isn't as easy as you think when you're doing, you know, sometimes there's a period where you're doing 30 or 40 interviews a week and your brain turns to mush yeah. and you just keep powering through the sentences. Uh, do you have any say over any new words that get added to the dictionary? I do. Um, what is a word that... Uh, I feel like it's the Hall of Fame each year. Um, 
What was what word has been turned down that maybe had the highest number of votes? I don't know. Well, how it's, it's not really a vote per se. It's, everyone's pretty, you know, on the same page. Um, words that we haven't added lately, I'd have to think about. I'm, I'm thinking of I, thinking of a word that we did add within the last eight months, and just what this entails is like. Oh, you should add vape. Well, yes, vape should be added. But by adding vape, that means looking at your definitions for electronic, for tobacco, for hookah, for I mean, you you can't just yeah. nothing is in isolation, and that's why another reason why you can't just add it because it involves this domino effect of adding uh, many other things. Um, people who follow me on Twitter, which is more for my work than it is for my theater. You're new to Twitter. I'm new to Twitter. I was at a convention of copy editors, the American uh, Aces, the American Copy Editors Society. And uh, I, along with some of my colleagues at some of the other dictionaries, were doing these panels. And boy, when you are a lexicographer talking to a bunch of editors, it's like you're a rock star. It was really weird. It was really weird. Um, and they were like, what's your Twitter? What's your Twitter? We can't tweet about you if you don't have Twitter. Da, da, da. And I finally gave in. And um, So what is your... What it's is your... S. Kleinedler. S. Kleinedler. Yes. And it... Uh, even though I do unload the snark on there sometimes, um, it's, it is largely, for the most part, revolving around you know work issues. Um, do you have that in your profile, your Twitter profile, unloading the snark? I should. No, right now it just says lexicographer improviser. But for example, Snarker. Our, yeah, our, our our etymologist just redid this uh, etymology, the word history for cardamom, uh, the spice, and it's just it goes back. Hundreds. It's it's just amazing. So sometimes I'll post these word facts and the like up there. Uh, what's the what's the deal with literally? I'm rolling my eyes, audience. Literally has been around for literally decades, if not more. Um, it's got this resurgence recently of the, these clickbait articles. You won't believe it's in the dictionary, but we've in the, the American Heritage Dictionary has had it since at least the 70s. I think Merriam-Webster added it back in the 30s. It's really an old usage. And yes, literally sometimes means figuratively. So figure it out from context, like everything else in English. Whoa. Whoa. We got some feels. We got some feels. We field a lot of these kinds of questions. So between uh, Corey Stamper over at Merriam-Webster and me, we kind of deal with these questions over and over and over again. Uh, then what is one of the other questions that bothers you? Oh, it... Uh, the Or not necessarily bothers you, but that you get often. People... I did a TED talk, a TEDx talk on this uh, last year, which eventually, which basically says people don't want to ask questions. They want to be told that they're right so they can lord it over their neighbor or their father-in-law or something. Uh, I, I, I'm, 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 I'm making that a bigger deal than it is. But a lot of times people really just want to be told that they're right. Um, and a lot of people hold on to these uh, – Steve Pinker in Sense of Style uh, talks about this quite a bit um, – he, he's the chair of our usage panel. Um, he he uh, will talk about just how people who learn something in third grade as an absolute truth, uh, for example, irregardless isn't a word. Right. Um, fine, whatever. But if you dislike irregardless, you should also like the word unravel, which means the same thing as ravel or debone. That means the same thing as bone. I mean, English isn't logical and people cling to these uh, do's and don'ts that were created 200 years ago by people who wanted English to work more like Latin, you know, thus the stupid don't split your infinitive rule yeah. and such. So I remember reading uh, or being told in school that it was a it was a popular belief 
that in, at the turn of this that by the turn of the century people thought that the letter C would be stricken from the from the alphabet. Uh, by the you mean eighteen hundreds into nineteen hundreds. Yes. Yes. Well, there were, um, it was Ogden Nash, Oscar Wilde, one of those people came up with the, uh, basically, you could get rid of C by using K for the, K for the K sound and, mm-hmm. you know, all this S stuff. And leading to one thing until all of a sudden, you know, you could have the series G-H-O-T-I, meaning fish, right. that kind of thing. Um, yeah, people have, since the days of the early Greeks and probably sooner every generation has complained about the way the next generation speaks so we're still here radio didn't kill English the telegram didn't kill English you know texting isn't going to kill English your grandparents aren't running around not using small words and yelling stop at the end of every sentence (laughs) this just in from the front stop yeah (laughs) so let's get back into uh, Boston yeah Uh, and in particular, uh, improv Boston. Right. Uh, so, what else is what else is going on on there, and then what leads you to leave? Right. Um, improv Boston at this point in the middle two thousands is doing phenomenally well. It's just moved into a new space. Successful fundraisers. Will's got things running uh, on all engines. There's the the, the festival starting up. The classes are growing. Um, it's just um, a really nice uh big time and uh i'm involved in a lot of things and then in 2009 uh my husband peter unexpectedly died and you know that sucks and i won't go into the depressive depressive period although to say i did compensate by just completely throwing myself into activity seven nights a week you know directing uh directing multiple things, teaching multiple classes. So Mm -hmm. I probably didn't deal with that in the best way, but I did what I had to do. Um, Since I wasn't a New Englander, I figured I probably wouldn't always stay there. And because of that, I mean, had had Peter been alive, I obviously would have, but with him gone, there was no point in staying there. And at that point, IB had reached a really great place and it had grown and I'd been there for a lot of the growth and keep in mind it had been there for 15 years prior to I had even been there it's been around for over 30 years mm-hmm. um and it was a nice inflection point um Zach Ward was coming in to be the managing director um there were just a lot of changes going on that were neither good nor bad in fact uh I mean financially it's much stronger than it's ever been um and institutions change and they have to yeah. because when they stop changing um, they, they, they get stagnant and you either grow or you die. Yeah. So it was, it was <laughs> that's, an, that's it, in something. I don't yeah, know yeah. what it is, but that's from remember. something. It, it, uh, it was a good inflection point. And I, at that point I had done just about everything direct main stage and I was in line to, um, but at that point I had been to Philadelphia a few times. Peter and I had visited here in the aughts to eat, um, some like Susanna Fu, um, in the aughts, in the aughts. Um, I, I, we don't say stop after every sentence, but we continue to use the, the aughts. aughts. Uh, when more and more to open, we came down here to eat there. Um, and then six months before he died, I had been at, uh, the Philly Pro Festival four, which was held over at plays and players, which was big and phenomenal. My team, Marjean, my, uh, I was on a Herald team, uh, up in Boston, we traveled a lot. Uh, Marjean came down here to be in that, and it rained the entire time, so everyone stayed in or around the theater, and it's a gorgeous theater. It's double, uh, there's a balcony level, and got to know a fair amount of people, and through that, um, uh, Marjean would come back 
to do shows. We came back to other festivals, but we also came back. We did uh, some shows over at the NCrowd space. Um, the uh, I would come down and I'd stay with uh, Matt Nelson, and uh, I, I would see you know NCrowd shows. At this point, um, uh, uh, Fit was still just getting uh, every other just two month two two nights. Two weekends a month shows over at the Schumann. Mm. Um, so what is this like? Uh, aught seven, aught eight. This would be like aught eight, aught nine. Okay. And um, it, uh, it, I could tell that the entire community was growing. I mean, it was like it, it was it was very exciting to me. And I liked Philadelphia. Um, it's a little closer to Michigan. It's um, it's not Boston where people are mean to you. Um, and it was just it was new and exciting and. It was really uh, uh, it, it intrigued me, and so then Peter died in '09, and I just kept it in the back of my mind. And I would come here and visit a lot. Went to a couple more festivals, and then by the festival in 2010, I spent a lot of time that weekend talking to a lot of people. Um, I spoke to uh, I, I, you know because there was a festival in town. I was talking to Joe Bill, and I talked to Nelson, and I talked to Greg. Uh, Mon and Kristen Shear and Alexis and Mary Carpenter, who I actually went to Northwestern with, and I actually saw her do an improv show back in the '80s. Although I didn't know her at the time, but she was in a troupe with some friends of mine. Yeah. Um, that's how these history things intertwine. I spoke yeah. to a lot of people about the scene in Philly and where it was, and whether or not there'd be a part for me in it. And uh, I decided um, pretty much around. That would have been in fall of 2010, and then in December of 2010, I uh, was subbing for Will up at IB in the main stage for a couple of weeks, and I just decided, you know what, I think it's time to go. I I came down... Did you, did you do like John Cruck, uh, where he uh, he gets a hit and then just walks off the field? <laughs> Pretty much. You, you get a laugh and then just leave the stage? Yeah. I, uh, I, 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 uh, so I... Um, that week, I contacted a real estate agent in Philly, and I came down once in December of 2010, and I went to your Christmas party. That's yeah. where I met you. Yeah. And you're like, who is this person? Um, uh, and that would be nothing to me. Exactly <laughs> and then what I thought. I came down in January of 2011 and found the space that I eventually moved into. I put my place, my house in Boston on the market in well, in, like in February, it, 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 it got five offers in one day. I sold. But the, I moved in on April first. Once I made the decision, everything lined up, and it was boom, 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 boom. Mm-hmm. Um, and I moved here, and I started shadowing a class right away, as is you know Fitz's policy. I you know you can't just breeze in off the street and start teaching. So I shadowed uh, Nathan Edmondson for his two hundred one. Um, I was awestruck. Because, you know, I'd seen him perform nine million times. He, he, and he and I hit it off very well. Um, and uh, Mason Edmondson, is, he's, he's too good. He's, he's, he's too good. He's amazing. Um, he was one of my favorite improvisers here. I directed him in Punchline. Yeah. Uh, I mean, he just, he's so good. He's so good. <laughs> um, he, he's so dreamy. Um, and he knows it. And uh, he uses yeah. it for good, though. He doesn't use it for bad. Um, 
I'm not going to get into any of that. All right. Uh, so I, I was his shadow and he was like, well, let's hang out after class and like do scenes. I'm like, okay. And, you know, we, 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 we would just, after class, we'd sit around and we'd just do scenes, the two of us. And they always had this weird, like being watched vibe or this kind of cold warish vibe. I mean, and so when we decided to do a two person show, Half-Life came about, um, where we play two spies from the cold war just came out of the style of improv we were doing with each other. And, uh, it, it. It, 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 as a two-person show, um, I, I had a relationship with that Harry Gordon up in Improv Boston, where he and I do a show called Directions. And now I've got—I had this one with Nathan, where it was just effortless. We would get on stage and just play off each other, and it was—it wasn't work. It was—it was like breathing. And those shows that we did were just so much fun. We would get a Cold War incident, and we'd be two spies, you know, in that milieu, and uh, away we <laughs> go. Uh, yeah, you were dressed, if I remember correctly, white shirts, black pants. Black ties. Uh, black ties. Had a, uh... Tumblr scotch. Yeah. Um, and then more or less, it was just you guys talking to each other mm-hmm. for about a half hour. Yeah, and the the nice thing was, it was it, it, there ended up being a coherent storyline, mm-hmm. but since we were getting inputs that happened anywhere between 1957 and 1976, you know, it'd be like... Oh, is he married to Sheila yet? Is he still dating Sheila? He's got a kid. Is the kid around yet? Um, and, and all, and th- those were minor components, but they mm-hmm. were still there. Um, when Figment was first getting started, and they they were they had the Vagabond series. We did this show having to do with Rizzo's election, and it was up in this like warehouse space uh, in um, Old Kensington, and it just the space and everything added to that. Um, some of the shows at the uh, um, the brewery too, and when I, later when I would visit him in LA, we've done the show at uh, iOS in the small space upstairs a couple times. Uh, there was one we spent twenty five minutes literally crammed up next to each other, stuck in a uh, space capsule, um, and it was one of our best shows. I mean, they were, just, they were just so fun to do, and working with him was so effortless. And when he left, um, he, he after a run, he told me he was leaving. Him and his girlfriend were leaving for LA. And, you know, I was very happy for him, but I was also kind of heartbroken because I, you know, I, I've i done a lot of two-person shows with other people, but I, I don't, I, I hope to someday have that with someone else because he and I had a very close rapport. I love you, Nathan. <laughs> I know you're listening to this. You don't need to get closer. No, no. Uh, okay. <laughs> I just leaned into the mic. I'm just kidding. Uh, please stay at least a foot back. Um all right, so Half Life. Uh, what was the next project that you got involved in? Was it? It was probably Hot Dish. Um, no, before Hot Dish, it was Twenty Four. Um, uh, okay, yeah, which I was also in. Yes, which you were also in. Uh, there was a uh, the Fringe that year. Uh, I had just come in, and there had just been a round of auditions and new teams, so there wasn't a new team for me. So Greg offered me, you know, to do a fit show for fringe and uh so i took 24 which was essentially a mono scene well two different mono scenes uh 24 minutes a piece and uh by the time we got to performance we figured oh you know we'll ask the audience to pick one character they liked from the first half that character will remain the same in the second half and um it will uh uh it will uh be a whole new mono scene it was Mm -hmm. so much fun the cast was great there was you uh 
you know, I, I remember seeing you did a scene with Kate Summer in a, in a trailer park that was so much fun. <laughs> uh, Becca Traben's uh, Joan Fitzke character came out of one of the rehearsals. Those of you <laughs> yeah. who have seen her do her uh, yeah. her, her therapist uh, that came from one of the rehearsals It was a lot of fun. Um, and uh, it it you know it, it was it was a nice way to introduce myself, I think. And then later that year, um, two new teams came into being, and so. Uh, Maggie Keegan got Davinger and I got Hot Dish. And uh, that was a, uh, a my, my, I kind of took a Christian Shearer approach with a more organic, no, no, you know, those who've had me in class know that I kind of like to avoid the, the, the stompy sweep edits. So just moving from um, a character to, um, to, to environment and back and forth, or as Chris Coletta would say, you know, being a rock or a tree, although they could be much more than rocks <laughs> or trees. Um, and, you know, honestly, this came about in auditions when Chris played an inanimate object in auditions and did really well. Or he was might it have been a, a rock tr- or a tree? Yeah, I, he might have been a rock or a turtle. I don't remember. <laughs> but it was like, wow, he did really good at that. I like this concept. I think I'm going to look at other people with this eye. And... Um, yeah, it was it was a lot of fun to do. And that summer, our first summer for Fringe, the, I rather than letting you know having to go through an audition process, I had the cast of Hot Dish do um, backstory uh, for Fringe, which was a show I had done up at Improv Boston, in which uh, the, it's told backwards. It starts out with very short scenes, uh, the short clumps, and the first line of every clump becomes the last line of the next clump. So it's very memento-y, kind of lynchy, And uh, it goes backwards in time. And the, the you know, the, the first few rehearsals, the cast is like, what is going on? And then, then it just dawns on them. And then, you know, and they nailed it. They nailed the form. Um, and they were great. Um, shortly after that, Hot Dish came to an end. That's when I got the Dog Mountain gigs. Well, uh, um, un- un- yeah. un- unpack yeah. a little unpack, bit. Unpack, unpack. a little bit. Uh, so tell me more about Hot Dish. Um, what was the experience like? What was it like picking picking the cast? Um, at this point, we're not at the Adrian, right? Right, right. Um, yeah. Oh, the, the auditions were pretty cool in that... Um, it, it, Kristen was looking for a couple people for Zhao Gao, and, uh, but it was mostly Maggie and me. And we had our list of people we wanted to call back. You know, the auditions were, you, you I mean, I, I've seen more scripted and improv auditions than you can imagine. I mean, thousands, and I'm not, that's not even hyperbole. I've literally seen thousands of people audition. And for me, I can, I can tell right away if someone, I don't want them. Uh, I, by the first beat of Red Ball or Bunny Bunny, I can eliminate <laughs> half the people. Um, in all my, what I do is I have a list of everyone and I just start crossing off people and anyone who's not crossed off at the end of the audition, I'll give a call back to. In, oh, let's say we're doing Bunny Bunny or Red Ball. Yeah. What is it in there that just, you're like, no, next? Um, lack of initiative, lack of eye contact, lack of play. Um, not connecting. Um, I don't care if you do it badly at first. You know, I just, are you present? Are you, were you, I think you were there. We had one, there was one guy who was checking his texts on the back line during the audition. And Maggie and I were like, what the hell? Um, it, 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 so you, you see, every, and I, I can, I can, depending on what I'm looking for, you know, you can tell. And in 10 years, someone at IB, there's only one person who I've ever, crossed off and then uncrossed off 
Um, and that person was Chris Farley. No, that person was not Chris <laughs> Farley. But um, it, it, you know, and it it's it's usually which you know I I, I need to, anything I would ever need to see in an improv rendition I can do in fifteen twenty minutes easily. Anyhow, so Maggie and I had our list of callbacks, and um, after callbacks, um, I was like. I want poop, 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 poop. She's like, I want poop, 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 poop. I'm like, cool. I mean, literally, it took us five minutes. There was one person that could have gone either way. And when we decided which way that person was going, everything else fell into place. I mean, it was it was the least contentious. It was the easiest callback ever as, mm-hmm. as far as she and I were concerned. Um, and she got, I mean, I think anyone who saw Davinger or Hot Dish, it would be hard to imagine any permutation that was different. I mean, they, everyone really made their stamp on those two teams and they, they, they had a very distinctive voice. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was, uh, it, it was a fun team. Yeah. And I had Corinne Wells, uh, yeah. who had also done backstory, of course. Yes. Uh, and well, no, she they all, also yeah. did 24. Yep. She had done 24. Um, and that was her first team. Now she's on, uh, outside voices. Right. Well, she and Ellen and Maureen, I had worked with an iron lung when they asked me to oh, guest right. coach. Ellen, Ellen Quayley. Yeah. Or Jaquette was, uh, yes. was on Hot Yes. It was, you know, and I cast nine back when we were only casting eight. And I, I told Greg, I want to cast nine. You never know. And like within a few months, Ellen had gotten a job offer out in, in Minnesota and had to take it. And she wrote me this letter feeling so, and I'm like, you're an adult. This is a real job. I mean, don't feel bad for me. Take this job. Yeah. Um, but later that year when Rachel Semigrand got back from England, um, we absorbed her into the cast um, for that ninth slot. And Andrew Stober and uh, and, and, and Emily from um, uh, Fletcher mm-hmm. uh, were in that and Coletta and Jim Burns. And, uh, yeah, there were only three guys. The rest Sue. were women. Sue Jahani. Yep. Yeah. Uh, and Martha Cooney. And Martha, yeah. Uh, Andrew's somebody who doesn't really do much of anything these days. Because uh, he has a kid. Not, not, not just the, the kid and the wife. And uh, the city job. But the, the awesome city job. Yeah. Um, but it's a shame, too, because he was so good. Uh, Andrew's responsible for the April Fool's Day prank a couple years ago <laughs> where they put um, cell phone walking lanes on the sidewalk. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, uh, Andrew Stober, uh, good guy working in the city. Yep. Um, okay, so twenty four backstory, hot dish, uh, hot dish ends. Um, I, I, now here, I want to talk about this one real fast. Uh, I'm in it, and I'm still not exactly sure how you got involved with Passionist Passionist. Oh, uh, it began with uh, it was a Troika team. It was a tra- yeah. Uh, it was a Troika team with me, Rafa Andrakio, and Andy Moskowitz. Andy Moskowitz went up to New York, um, but we won in, I think it was 2010 or 2011 Troika. Yeah. Uh, Troika champions, Pasiones yes. de Pasiones. It was the year before Chaperone. Yes. When, 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 when Meredith and Frank and I came in second place. Yeah. Uh, not a champion. How did you, how did you get involved? I don't, I don't even remember. Um, do you guys want it? No, I think it was one of two things. Either Andy hadn't quite left yet, which I don't think is the case. I think Andy was coming back to do a show. So it was slotted. And then for some reason he couldn't make it. And the show was on the schedule and it was not, they, he wasn't there. So you and Ralph asked me, I think. Okay. All right. And I had done some telenovela work with Will Luera and, uh, Zabeth up in, um, Boston when mm-hmm. I worked on, um, I Diego with them. Um, within it, there was a bit called, uh, Sabado Gigante. Uh, <laughs> Sabado Gigante. Well, no, that's an actual thing. We took Sabado Gigante and we did, uh, Miércoles Cabeza, 
which literally means Wednesday, Wednesday head. head. Yeah. And um, it was a like thing. And uh, for that show... They, Will and Zabeth did this thing where we played a telenovela with the sound off and they would supply the language in English, you know, to the, to the lip movement. Mm-hmm. And while doing the, making the videotapes for those, um, I got addicted to this telenovela. So I spent like an entire year watching El Ama Herida and, um, really getting sucked into this whole telenovela. So, um, it's, it's, it's a fun format. And anyone who's, uh, if you've never gone to YouTube and YouTubed uh, Maldita Lisiana, um, you will see the most amazing telenovela clip ever um, of this. Uh, oh, yeah. Yeah, totally losing her crap. Yeah. Um, so it, good. For good. They're, they're brilliant. And anyhow, so it was, it was, it was, I was happy to be asked and we've had a lot of fun doing it. Yeah. Uh, yeah, there's been some fun, <laughs> some fun shows. <laughs> Uh, more often than not, somebody gets slapped. Gets slapped. Yes. Um, or all of us. Or all of us get slapped. I think I did a double slap with you and Ralph at, in the last show. Yes. Uh, straight out of the Stooges. Um, yeah, I mean, that's one one show that I love, but it's not one that I would point to as an example of uh, go through fit, learn, you know, this, that, right. and the other thing, and one day you can perform like Passiones. I don't want anybody that right. I teach a class... Uh, looking the Passiones as an example of um, uh, what they should be getting from class. Um, but that said, yeah. it is a really, really fun show. Yeah. Uh, Can I say something about classes? Can we segue for a moment? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Just that now that I've been teaching here for four years, um, and usually I teach the upper levels, the 301s and the 401s, and the just the quality of students that have been coming through is awesome. And every year it's just gotten stronger and stronger. The 101 and 201 teachers here have been phenomenal. I mean, it's really great. The the last Herald class I taught, the only Herald class I taught, I didn't have to worry about teaching any of the basics because they all had that and we could just jump right into the format, which was really nice. Um, And the, 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 the the conservatories, the two conservatories that I've done, um, just great students who would just, eager and willing to learn and i think again that's a really great thing about philadelphia um like boston philadelphia will always be a city where some people will leave for la or some people move to new york or chicago but there's a lot of people who won't and um it it is exactly what you make of it um you there's so many opportunities and it's great when i see people um taking advantage of them um so it's, it's, it's a great town. Yeah. Uh, well, as the education director of the Philly Improv Theater, I take full credit. Uh, <laughs> no, it's actually, uh, we're really lucky here to have uh, here, because we, we keep saying here because we're actually in the fit office right now, um, to have the instructors that we do that not have, that have not just been through the fit program, many of them, but continue to train elsewhere and bring back that knowledge as well. Um, so whether it's sketch or improv, uh, we're really, really lucky. And that's, uh, that's the main reason it just keeps getting stronger and stronger because each of those instructors just keeps growing in themselves. So that's awesome. Uh, and it's always good to hear. Um, all right. So after hot dish ends, uh, you don't direct anything for a little while, right? Um, well, I've got the Dean's List keeping me occupied, A. Uh, okay. there's the, it, it's a really great concept of getting students in the training program to perform in a free show uh, opposite three uh, instructors. And instructors love doing it. Um, the students love doing it. 
um, and it's it's op- there's an opener with an indie team. So and it's free, and so it's a really good way of just bring you know building community involvement. It's um, uh, a lot of um, fun, and right around right at exactly at the same time as that was happening, um, Michael Hockman, who with Mayor Karen had put together um, an idea to do. Uh, uh, page one, which is uh, based on a concept out of Improv Boston called um, uh, Playbook, uh, they were in need of a director. Um, it was going up for the fringe, and it was something I had seen the original run of. And because of the theatrical background, which I have a lot of um, uh, familiarity with, um, we uh, they asked me to uh, coach that. And so we did that. We did the run, and then we ended up uh, uh, kicking off with a couple other shows, the Dynamite series, and it ran for another year, uh, once a month. And that was a really, a lot of fun working with different playwrights across the Eastern seaboard, really. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I had connections in New York and, um, Boston and Lizzie Spellman, who was in the cast, had a ton of connections too. Mm-hmm. And between us, we got close to 20 playwrights who would write a first page of a script. Sometimes it had already been produced, other times it hadn't. And, um, the cast would see the script for the very first time on stage and, uh, We'd, uh, and then they'd improvise the rest of it. And, you know, people are like, well, how do you rehearse that? And, you know, the answer is that is, you know, we just worked a lot on theme, tone, how to pick from one page, pick out what is the tone, how to, how to, how to not improvise the way you would, but the way that this character would be written by yeah. the playwright. Um, and I think it was, it was extremely successful. And I, I loved the fact that the closing night we were doing, the same show on the second floor that Interact was doing on the first floor because um, we were using the first page of the script of the show that was going on beneath us. So I you used the first page of Uncanny Valley? Yeah. Uh, they performed Uncanny Valley uh, downstairs. Yes. Uh, and that week or the following week, one of the lectures in study hall, which I direct, uh, was on the Uncanny Valley which and uh, and that was just that that just happened to be the case. Yes. But I thought that was all pretty. It was, uh, it was very cool. Um, you know, it, it was and they were theatrical. They're you know forty five minute pieces that are three theatrically based. And I think the cast and, and the audiences therefore too realize that you know it, an improv style doesn't need to be a joke a minute, a joke a second. You know, you can have long stretches of non-funny and there's mm-hmm. just because we're expecting comedy there's always going to be some type of payoff but the right. audiences were so invested uh the actors were so just it, it, it was it was it was a really great run to have mm-hmm. um and towards the end of that run about midway through um in, in order to address the issue of there not being as many older people on stage um i met with uh the powers that be here and proposed and they accepted uh, my concept for Dirty Laundry, uh, which uh, has gotten uh, several of our actors in their 40s and 50s and 60s up on stage, uh, centering around uh, a, 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 a married couple, the the woman's two sisters and their two kids. Um, Kelly Jo Little was on one of the original house teams here. Activity Book. Yes, and Rick Horner uh, was one of the original directors here. Of Activity Book. Yes. And then uh, the other two, uh, Susan and Mary, were both students of mine. And um, In Activity Book. No, no they were not in Activity Book. <laughs> um, and, uh, and, you know, David Danella's in everything, and uh, Molly's in a lot, too. Mm-hmm. I know you direct both of them. And, yep. Uh, and they, that... From day one, I mean, rehearsals have been like a family reunion picnic. That cast is so tight. Um, we went roller skating, and it was 
like a family outing. And when we went down to Baltimore to do a show, just we all went in one van, in Kelly's mom van. And <laughs> Molly and David were in the back seat, sugared up. And then on the ride home, they were like completely passed out. I mean, it was it was so much fun. But, you know, it's just another really good example of, you know, just how big this community is and how if you've got an idea, you know, run with it. And, yeah. yeah. Uh, well, speaking of, um, you know, the, I don't even know a good way to say it, older uh, performers. Uh, I was going to say, I was going to go with elder, but that sounds worse. Um uh, You also had a group. or Is, is that yeah. still going where you kind of meet with these it's, uh, it's a, uh, elders? There's a uh, group of improv. There's a Facebook group of improvisers here over the age of 45, which is arbitrary. I was going to make it 50, but I'm only 48. And it seemed weird to be younger than that. So um, we've we've met here once at Fit, um, and people are right now are using it for um, you know announcing shows and whatnot. And I'm, I'm not the I'm not, and I keep saying I'm not the leader per se. I'm you know I've I, I've I've made this available for all of us to use as a resource. But it's been good because you know people go and support each other's shows. Mm-hmm. Um, you know it, it, it's just you know another way to to, to connect within a, a a a group. Why why do you find that? Uh, helpful. Um, I think you know there's there's unconscious biases that people have regarding you know a wide variety of different um, young old you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think sometimes a lot of older people might feel defeated. Um, well, I know they do because some of them have spoken to me about it. And it's I, I, I do this as kind of as an empowering way of. Um, you know, keeping them involved and keeping them interested, and and I know there's other groups in town like the incubator and the refinery that you know reach reaches out to, and, and it's great. And mm-hmm. the, 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 I've had very I've had I've had very good success with teaching a wide variety of ages. I had one class that there were two people in their twenties, in their thirties, in their forties, their fifties, and their sixties. I mean, it was just evenly balanced like that, and it was so much fun. And I think older students. And by older, I mean even people my age um, uh, respond well to me because you know I'm not that there's anything wrong with any of our 24 year old students, but sometimes a 50 year old can hear things from a 48 year old that they can't hear from a 24 year old, or and and, and I don't mean to put that sure. on a 50 year old or anything, but it's just I think it's good when anyone sees more of themselves. Um, and if you're coming here and all you see is 28-year-olds, you can get a little defeated. But when you can interact and connect and network with people who are like you, um, that that uh, makes it easier to come to. And you know, it, it, and so you know, I'm I, I'm all in favor of you know diversity of age, and I'm happy to you know do what I can to make that a thing. Okay. So you've done a bunch of uh, teaching, coaching, directing. Um, what has, because uh, I know I know in my shorter experience uh, teaching, coaching, directing, I've kind of developed my own style of how I deal with things. Uh, how would you define your teaching style, your directing style, uh, and your coaching style? If you feel there's a difference between the directing and coaching, I my style as far as state what what the finished product is is a, a fluidity of movement, a realization that you're being watched right um which is really interesting how it ties in with uh the conservatory show neighborhood watch but um (laughs) it kind of almost accidental but there's there's nothing that the audience doesn't see so if you're on the back line um you know i i worked on the show in boston where 
it was kind of like where I, one of the genesis is for hot dish, but it was like, we were active environment because it was a spy show. And so we were rotating fan blades and all of this stuff. And it was amazing. Um, the audience can see you. There's no point in hiding behind a block or pretending you're not there. So you have to be conscious of the fact that you're on. And this, this isn't just improv. This is also how I, uh, direct, uh, you know, stage place too. Um, I did this, set of Durang 1X and by chance there was the same actor who was in the end of one who was in the beginning of the next and that was the only time that it happened and the scene changes were done with these big fluid movements I mean and they were the, 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 the scene designer was amazing there was all this fabric that just got removed and shifted and sh- scenes flowed from one into the other and while this scene was being set up he was dressed in a tuxedo and had to change into normal wear and he just came down stage and the woman who played his wife in the next scene came and you know held out his shirt and they he she helped him change clothes and when they when he was finished the scene, the set change was finished and they just started from right there and it it gave them as actors a chance to connect with each other it primed the pump uh, to the audience that these two people were going to do something together um and it rather than having someone run off and do this hurried scene change and come back on all flustered he had the time to you know the 20 seconds to change his clothes and get into character and 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 it ended up being amazing um and or similarly for this company bad habit up in boston when i directed rosencrantz and guildenstern are dead um, just the awareness of the fact that the lead characters never leave the stage. And why is that? And this is where reading and seeing other stuff as a background, I could tell my actors, go watch um, Bunuel's Exterminating Angel, um, which is this great movie from the 60s where these socialites are at a party and they can't leave. And they could leave, but they can't leave. They're, they're, they're trapped in this existential crisis where they literally can't cross the threshold. They just get up to the door and they stop. Um, people die, people have affairs, it's insane. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, 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 because I had this, I could show the actors that and they could use that as a reference point. And it, it all, I, I'm kind of getting long winded here, but it, it, it all ties into this awareness of self on stage and this fluidity of movement. And I don't necessarily mean awareness of oneself. Yeah, I guess I kind of do. There comes a point where when you're, good enough to do this where there is a part of your head where technique does take over and you can be completely in the moment yet know how to manipulate the moment or you can be completely in the moment but be aware of your stage presence to know my the audience can't see me i need to shift or um being present as a performer at the same time as being present in the scene as a character and when you are able to straddle this duality um it becomes easier to be both a performer and one who is viewed by an audience. Um, it, it, so when I, when I direct, you know, I encourage, and I, the, the last Herald class I taught, there were no, I wanted to see if I could do this. And if it didn't work, I was going to say, forget it, just do it anyway. But I wanted to do a Herald where there were no sweep edits. And I said, I, the first time I went to the class, I said, we're going to do a 10 minute montage as a warm up. No rules other than no sweep edits. Whatever that means, however you want to do it. And for whatever reason, this class was amazing at it. And they would just, you know, they would just cross this, that. And after 
maybe the first five minutes, everyone was on board with, oh, that person is editing me or, oh, that person is not editing me. And the few times that there were weird weirdnesses, I was like, okay, now let's look at the eyes. You know, if you're not in someone's scene, you're not making eye contact with them. If you do want to enter a scene, you're, you know, you can convey so much, you know, with the, the, the subtlest of glance. And they were phenomenal and they did an entire Herald without any sweep edits. Mm-hmm. Um, to me, a sweep edit works in a lot of contexts, but sometimes it also reinforces that this is something that you're watching that, 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 um, it, it, the, the ability to transform scene into scene without having an overt marker that it's a scene change, uh, can be really magical. You know, you can have, scenes where you're in two scenes simultaneously and sometimes you know you're just reacting to both other times the lines you say literally apply to both um it it allows you to be freer and uh just be in the scene without worrying about all the trappings i mean as someone who's been direct i mean how how did you find the experience in 24 i realize that's not quite the same because it's a mono scene but yeah it's a different different kind of show uh i actually I agree with what you're saying, uh, although I do like sweep edits, uh, especially in front of a crowd that doesn't necessarily see improv. Uh, I find them to be very audience-friendly. Um, I think that if you have a show um, that you want to be you know, funny, uh, sweep edits help with that, and they kind of clue the audience into... That you know that that you can that you can laugh and then you can applaud at the they, they it signifies an yeah. end to one thing that's happening. You bring up a very good point, and that is training the audience, and that's yeah. something that I talk about in my classes when I do this kind of thing. If you're doing a 22 minute set and you don't do your first tap out until 20 minutes in, it's going to throw the audience off. Yep. I mean, you've got to you've got to. You've got to, the first four or five minutes, you've got to um, instruct the audience how you're playing the show, what mm-hmm. they're watching. Yeah. And you're absolutely right. I mean, it, 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 if you were doing a show that has sweep edits, and I'm not putting them down unilaterally. I, under, I completely understand their place. I don't use them because plenty of directors do, and it's just you know a directorial choice. I have nothing wrong with others do. But you're right. It's a way of instructing your audience, here's a beat shift. When you don't use those and you have to rely on other ways, uh, the challenge is teaching the actors how to consistently convey, and I use this phrase all the time, to convey what the syntax of the, of, of the show structure is. Yeah. If a, if a show is consists of numerous beats, uh, the syntax is going to be the things that connects them to together, much like the syntax of an English language. And you've got to, in the, in the, in the first few transitions, you've got to provide the audience, the tools to interpret the piece, mm-hmm. um, which is why, you know, in, in, in the different shows that I do have different, one reason why in backstory, for example, um, the first few scenes are so short. The first scene is one line, two lines, six lines, two minutes, and it builds up and then it goes back down. But by having those frequent changes right up the front, the audience is seeing right off the bat that, oh, the first line of this chunk is the second line of that chunk. Because here's one line, here's two lines, here's six lines, and then a short scene. They can see that right away. So that makes it much easier for them to digest when it happens later on. Yeah. Um, so to, if you're doing a Shakespearean show, you know, just, just getting them started with a prologue or um, 
you know, if you can have an improvise, I was lucky enough in Boston to have an improviser who can improvise a sonnet. Um, by speaking in the language, they know what to expect. And it's not going to be a whole bunch of short let, 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 let type dialogue, but you've got couplets and, you know, four lines or 16 lines in between lines. So it is a director, something a good director should know is how to speak to the audience through the structure of the show. Mm-hmm. Uh, I predict that years from now, the sweep edit of that time will not be the sweep, but be the passiones edit. <laughs> the bram 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 passiones de passiones. Uh, that's always my favorite part of the show, and I don't even know if you realize this, but when I when I do that, each time that it gets done for me, uh, for some reason, I do it more. I do it louder. I do it with more energy and usually angrier. Um, I'm not sure why. Yeah. Uh, I, I'm too busy trying to know which hand to begin with. I'm horrible <laughs> yeah. with choreography there. So Philly is a place where people train a lot of different places, with the most common being uh, New York, uh, and the most common within that being the UCB, which, uh, of course, is very um, uh, focused on what the game of the scene is. So I'm curious as to what your thoughts on the game of the scene is as it relates to kind of what we kind of go through with fit, which uh, we don't ignore game by any means. Uh, it's just not the focus of of the curriculum. Right. Um, part of the issue with the word game is that so many different schools use it in so many different ways. And a lot of times when people talk about game, often people aren't on the same page. Um, so one needs to define one's terms. Uh, I in, At Infra Boston, we never discussed game either, but what we did spend a lot of time on, and I think in this sense it's the exact same thing, is pattern and pattern recognition mm-hmm. and knowing how, what to do with patterns, how to manipulate them. It's exactly the same thing. Um, sometimes people see me bristle with the word game just because of some negative associations I've had with it over the years, which is not a slam against game itself or any institution that promotes game. Um, I've just always been more comfortable uh, talking about patterns. At any rate, um, it is obviously extremely extent, uh, um, important and essential to be able to recognize patterns, to play through patterns, to manipulate them, um, to be just aware of them. I think what it's to me as important as game is relationship um and to some people that's completely uh, not a controversial statement to some it actually is um i have seen shows that have game without relationship and according to some people's definitions of game, that's impossible. Others, not. But I have seen game without relationship, and it's awful. And I don't like watching it, and it bores me. Um, to me, I can see relationship scenes without games. I think relationship scenes with games are usually more fulfilling than relationship scenes without games. Um I think they go best hand in hand. If you've got a grounded relationship and a pattern develops and you're able to play through that pattern, you're going to have a very rich, uh, grounded scene. And I would like to think that people have had me in class or people who've seen me on stage espouse this philosophy, and, I, and I'm very in favor of it. Um, I think it comes down to the fact that if I had to choose between a scene that had no relationship but had game versus one that had 
game but no relationship, I would prefer the one with relationship. Um, yeah. So uh, I would as well. Uh, I mean, for me, it's the the game of the scene. Well, actually, everything is a byproduct uh, in the scene of the relationship to me. Right. Like everything gets filtered through that. Uh, everything that's created is created from whatever the relationship is between those two people. Uh, and then you can choose to focus on whatever you want to focus on within that. And it just so happens that uh, many people from the byproduct of that relationship focus on that that game. And, and it's great. And, uh, you know, and but certainly, I mean, if you come see an episode of Dirty Laundry, you'll find plenty of game going on. And mm-hmm. that is an extremely grounded in relationship show to the extent that they play the same characters um, you know, in every show, and they and they know their backstories very well. Um, it, 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 I don't know why it's a controversial statement to say that one doesn't like scenes that have game but not relationship. But I tend to find them kind of jokey and not satisfying, kind of empty calorie like. And uh, I had uh, Mark Sutton, Mark Sutton, friend of the podcast. Uh, and one of my former instructors uh, from the Annoyance, he was on the podcast, and he said when I was talking to him about this, uh, not every scene has a game. Sorry, UCB, but it's true. Not every scene has a game. Um, so what do you have then if you don't have that? You gotta have those. You gotta have those two people. We gotta give a shit about those two people. As either Mark or Joe said, um, it was one of them. Um, Joe Bill, Mark Sutton. Uh, as one of them said, uh, no one ever left an improv show saying, damn, I wish they'd fixed that bike. <laughs> yeah, that was, that was Sutton. That was Sutton? Uh, pretty sure. Uh, and he also said, no one ever leaves the show saying, wow, they LaRonded the shit out of that. Um, <laughs> when, when talking about groups that become obsessed with form. Mm-hmm. And what are we going to do? What, what form are we going to do? What form are we going to do? We're going to work on form when you can do a two-person scene without boring the shit out of me. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Which is another one of his. Um, yeah, Mark Sutton. One of my improv mentors. I like Mark. Uh, he's great. we got to get him back out here. He hasn't been out here since... Uh, he wasn't out here last summer. He wasn't out here the previous summer. Uh, but somebody that is coming out uh, in July is Susan Messing, um, who, when asked about games, she would say that uh, a game is anything you do more than once. Which falls into my pattern definition. Yeah. 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 Uh, And what's sad is when people do things more than once and don't recognize it or their scene partner doesn't recognize it, and then it just lays there like wet oatmeal, unfulfilled. Yeah. Which also goes along with the kind of conveying to the audience what the what the rules are of of the show. So you got to be super aware of everything that you're doing and what your team's doing, not just for you. But for the audience as well, so that they can start to follow those different patterns and games as well. Which ties into one of my philosophies. Probably the thing I hammer home the most is I, 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 get, I get really annoyed when people think their initial offer or state of being isn't good enough and they drop it and they start something else and start something else and start something else and soon they've had 90 seconds of nothing. Uh, it, everything you have is there in the beginning. And I, I, I think I do a good job of instilling this in into students um it's it's so enriching to see, see someone hold on to something and play through it rather than give up on it or change it because they think that's what their scene partner wants when mm-hmm. in fact their scene partner did that because of what had been done to begin with yeah uh i think that depending on the style of 
improv you're doing. Like if you're pulling from a premise, there are definitely different rules. But if we're doing more of a discovery-based thing, absolutely, you got to oh, hang on to that. And even within that kind of show, it depends on the part of the show. I mean, there, there. Is, if you're doing what the, the the technique for the tops of the scenes in the first beats of Harold, for for example, might be are very different from the second beats, where right. you know you need to be clear what you're doing so the person can do it you want them to do. Mm-hmm. Um, so even within the same shows, there's different techniques. But mm-hmm. I, yeah, I was speaking primarily of discovery-based. Was that the topic of the workshop that you did, the Promise Keepers one? Yes. The one that I had to rename because Promise Keepers is kind of used by the uh, the religious people. <laughs> in a, it, what did you rename it? Um, oh Keeping that promise. Uh, something, I think I either had the word... Um, the word contract in the title, or um, I, 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 Oathkeeper. Yeah, I had a the I had sword a, that Brienne of Tarth uses. <laughs> that's good. That's good. <laughs> I had a, uh, I, I don't know. I probably had some f word in it. Um, I don't know. I, 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 I. All right. Well, let's do the workshop yeah. again. Yes. Uh, and call it some variation of Promise yes. Keepers. Um, oh, strong starts is how I think I called it. Okay, I like that. Um, sounds like a like a breakfast. Yes, uh, put out by like Kellogg's or something. Strong Kellogg's starts. strong starts. That was yeah. vitamin R. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I think I taught it last in Detroit. Detroit, great, great, great town. Love them. Yeah. Uh, uh, wrapping up. Uh, what are some other improv uh, or even sketch things that, having performed in Chicago, Boston, and Philly? that you've come to love the way that they're done or some things that you wish would go away? I really think there's been a movement towards professionalism here um, in the past several years. Uh, People, and I think people are making, taking advantage of the resources that they have. It's much easier to do a sketch show now and have interstitial bits that involve technology. Anyone can shoot anything off an iPhone. You don't need to rent a $3,000 piece of equipment anymore. People, I think, are really taking advantage of that and figuring out how everything stitches together, um, thematic arcs in that regard. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I've been really pleased with the, you know, the sketch that I'd, um, I've seen here and elsewhere. And I think... My only note there is, you know, keep on editing and allow yourself to be edited. Uh, the overall arc of improv in the city is phenomenal across all the different uh, companies that produce and all the different independent things that are popping up. There's more of it, but I th- and you might think that would lower the bar and mean anyone can do it. But because there's more of it and there's a lot of people who are doing it well, I think people who aren't quite there yet are taking it seriously and either watching, learning on the streets, taking classes, whatever. I think the amount of really good work that's going on is is making all the people who quite, can't quite hit that bar yet want to hit that bar. And there's a hunger for it here, which is really nice to see. And, you know, I, I, I and I even know people who might not even necessarily be able to afford classes, but they're going to see shows. They're going to do the free things. They're doing this and that. And yep. there's a variety of things you can do. And, you know, I, I'm not paying lip service. I did all these things when I was young and broke. Um, and, 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 and that's great. Um, I really have very few pet peeves is like, Ugh. um, it, it, it's, it's gone in the days of, you know, just shitty yelling at each other and telling dick jokes gone. Well, they're not gone, but they're definitely not what they used to be. <laughs> okay. 
Uh, all right. So what do you have coming up uh, that, that people can either see you or see, see something that you've directed? Well, um, the conservatory class that I just did, uh, uh, directed, I'm going to stay on as their coach, and they're um, getting a lot of uh, uh, indie uh, things lined up. They've already got a couple shows lined up this summer. They've just created a Facebook page, so like uh, them. Uh, with Fit, uh, Dirty Laundry is still monthly. Uh, it's the first uh, Saturday of every month when it's not being preempted by national holidays or Duofest. Um, and that's a blast, and it, it just, it's well-received. They have fun. Um, I uh, am... You know, and and then I do one off. I do shows with Kristen uh, as Fracas pretty regularly. I think we're going to Pittsburgh later this year. At least I hope we are. Um, you can see me perform occasionally with Ralph and Sad Trombone. Um, Mike and I have a thing going on sometimes. Um, so more often than not, you'll see me behind the stage than in front of it. But um, yeah, Dirty Laundry and uh, Neighborhood Watch. If you get a chance, definitely check them out. Okay. Uh, and for anybody interested in your directing or coaching services, how can they reach you? Um, absolutely. My best, the best way is probably through my, um, either through, if you're a Facebook friend already, just there or through my, um, fit address, which is S Kleinedler at phillyimprov.com. Or now on Twitter at S Kleinedler. Right. Great. Great. Um, and yes, I'm, I'm always thrilled to coach people who have drive and want to commit. And I'm not much into half-assery, but if you're willing to put in the time, um, I'm happy to help. All right. Steve Kleinedler, thanks for getting close. Thank you, Mikey.